to Taipei this week. New People's Party lawmaker Eunice Young cuts off ties with her father-in-law, Elmer Yun, after he's accused of subversion by the Security Bureau. And you're listening to the news on RTHK. Given the volatility of the pandemic, please get the third COVID-19 vaccination dose soon. The antibody level will drop over time after receiving a vaccine. Getting the third jab gives extra protection to guard against the virus. Most importantly, it reduces the risks of severe disease and death. The mutant strains are highly contagious. Get the first and second doses soon if you haven't done so, and receive the third one on time to protect yourself and those around you. Enhance protection. Get all three doses. And welcome to the week on three with me, Noreen Mayer. It's lovely to be with you this Saturday morning, and I'll be looking after things for the next few months. So a big cheers to Christy for doing a smashing job with the week on three. Let's relax into our weekend with the highlights from Radio 3. Over the week, we've had so many interesting features from food to art and music. And I hope I can share some flavors of Radio 3 with you. Let's start off with Tuesday's Back Chat, where they talked about old and traditional eateries in Hong Kong. With several closures over the week, including Mido Cafe in Yamate and Happy Cake Shop in Wan Chai, hosts Janice Wong and Ada Wong spoke with Samuel Lai an anthropologist in Hong Kong food culture with a special interest in Cha Chan Tang, who starts by telling us what makes Mido Cafe so unique. When we talk about Mido Cafe, we have to be able to distinguish between uh, Cha Chan Tang, Bing uh, and Tan So basically, I would use the, the word tea restaurant, ice room, uh, and like soy sauce restaurants to differentiate them. So basically, like, um, Mido Cafe actually, like, based on an interview with the owner, like, previously, like, one month ago, uh, she actually believed that Mido Cafe is actually a soy sauce restaurant. So basically, it's like Taiping Kun. So they serve some sort of, like, a Western cuisine, but then they have a very um, Chinese touch in it. For example, like, they use soy sauce, and then, for example, like, instead of pork chop uh, rice, they would actually have it as in, like, pork ribs with tomato. So then, I guess it's like a twist of the Western cuisine, but then it's not exactly the Western cuisine nor the Chinese cuisine that we are usually uh, coming across on a daily basis. And at the same time, Mido Cafe is actually quite different from uh, Ice Room, uh, because like um, they sell something that is more high class. And at the same time, um, they don't exactly serve that many of a uh, light meal. So that is the kind of differentiation that we can get uh, based on Mido Cafe, Ice Room and Ta Tan yeah. um, on, on On Mido Cafe, Samuel, um, uh, there, there is actually like a cultural link, uh, you know, between Mido Cafe and, um, you know, the surroundings uh, in, in Yamate. Did you think that also adds to the significance of Mido Cafe or, or actually do you think Mido Cafe uh, is actually a significant um, eatery? Yeah. Yeah, I do believe that Middle Cafe is very significant, not just for the Yaomate kind of neighborhood, but also for Hong Kong. Not in, uh, because, like, uh, in many cases, like, uh, it somehow is very signature with its uh, decoration, its environment, and how it is able to, for the uh, customers to actually get to the second floor, to actually oversee the whole uh, Yaomate and the Qinhao Temple, which is actually quite magnificent. And I guess, like, there is not really that many kind of, like, restaurants nowadays uh, that is of such a grassroots nature, but then you can enjoy such a view. So then, uh, view-wise, is actually very nice. But then, I do believe that Mido Cafe is also some of the uh, one of the last 
kind of like uh, early developed kind of uh, time study in Hong Kong, which I do believe that uh, it has a uh, historical significance, not just in the food industry or food culture, but then in the Hong Kong culture in general. And 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 I note that um, during the pandemic, Amido Cafe closed uh, for a few months, and then it reopened. So um, the closure uh, announcement uh, probably comes as a surprise to to a lot of its customers. Uh, were you surprised? Uh, I, I I was surprised with a lot of these sort of like closure uh, announcements, not just with Amido Cafe, but then uh, I guess like uh, during the pandemic, is actually quite a hard hit on their businesses, like. There's really few people on the street, and then um, they can't really go into these sort of like restaurants. So then, I guess it's understandable. But then, at the same time, uh, I, I was very much looking forward to the reopening. Yeah, you, you mentioned Bing Sat, which is like ice parlor, right? In English, um, how, uh, how? I guess like yeah, sort of yeah. Uh, how how is that different? Because I see a lot of those uh, coming up again, and they are all new. Um, they have. Uh, I guess nice yeah. decoration and sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then sort of imitate the older style. Yeah. yeah, so I guess like we have to differentiate. Uh, use the word ice parlor, but then uh, technically it's called soda fountain back in the 1930s, all the way up to the 70s. So uh, I guess we have to differentiate like the genre, the category of um, soda fountain, as opposed to um, those who name themselves as things that like currently there's a lot a, a spur of trend of. Uh, new things are coming up, but then basically they are all Tartan which try to like uh, manipulate the kind of nostalgia that uh, in general is uh, quite developing. And then, but then Soda Fountain as itself, uh, currently in Hong Kong, I do believe that there are only two of them. One is in Tobawa, the another one is in Shengshou. So basically the major differences between uh, a Soda Fountain and a Tartan is whether they serve rice and whether they are actually serving light meal. So for ice parlor or say the fountain, they are majorly are selling our drinks and pastries, bread, and then very light meal, for example, like macaroni and soup. So that is the major difference. All right. And like I mentioned earlier, uh, today will be the last day of a happy cake shop in Wan Chai. And uh, last week we saw queues outside the shop after it announced uh, its decision to shut down. Um, why do you think so many people are lining up? I guess uh, a lot of people may not be living around the neighborhood for a long time. Like, I do believe that the Happy Baker is basically a community getaway which has uh, been there for like 40 years and then it has witnessed uh, generations of the same family from like very youngsters to being very awake. And then people are somehow a bit nostalgic and then they wish to go back to revisit the memory of them, like maybe like um, eating a cream cone while they're walking down the street getting back home but then that maybe somehow I do believe that is mostly due to the fact that they are very nostalgic about this particular place but then uh, on a side note I do believe that uh, there will be a resurgence of, of the happy uh, bakery because I do believe that they have a branch in Ma'on Shan but then of course they are that is quite a complete cut off from their neighborhood connection in one child but then uh, the foot itself may be able to actually be continued but uh, did you see a trend of, uh, I mean, people having these short-lived nostalgia when, um, when let's say, a cake shop or a bread shop closes down? But then, you know, uh, reg regularly they they won't be customers. Let's say they won't go to Happy Cake Shop every day and buy, um, like like a pineapple bun bar or bao for breakfast. Mm -hmm. But they they perhaps would go to like a French bakery, which are also quite abundant in Wan Chai, yeah, and and yeah. get a croissant. 
Yeah, I, I do believe that this is actually quite a structural problem, like currently, uh, with the rise in, rise in a lot of, like, uh, a lot of food options. And people seem to feel like uh, those are more decent, and then they would like to uh, purchase others. But then at some point of time, um, they would actually uh, go back to these particular uh, traditional uh, bakeries or, like, cake shops to buy them. I, I do believe that uh, nostalgia is quite a thing in Hong Kong, which uh, a lot of people may have to talk about it, but then I guess we have to look into it much more deeply terms of like why people would suddenly have a spur of like uh, such nostalgia and how, how why is that so short-lived because what i'm trying to do is exactly the opposite I, I do believe that we should not approach them with a sense of nostalgia but approach them as something that is uh, very much hong kong and how we can preserve or how we can actually continue them that is my kind of perspective but then the, the, the sort of like nostalgia among current uh, time is actually quite a fun thing to look about Mm. Um, Sammy, I know that uh, your research interest is in Cha Chan Tang and, and also its, um, uh, its uh, role in Hong Kong history. Um, w- w- really like uh, you to tell us a little bit more about, you know, how these uh, Cha Chan Tang came up and uh, soy sauce restaurants um, sort of, uh, um, you know, using Chinese methods to cook sort of Western style food. Because I know that um, nowadays we have uh, more families uh, moving to the UK and uh, one of the first things uh, in, in a lot of uh, suburb uh, districts on um, UK's high streets is um, the appearance of a Cha Chan Tang. So it, it's sort of um, connected to Hong Kong food culture. Yeah, uh, I guess like my, my kind of research is basically about uh, Cha Chan Tang. And then Cha Chan Tang is basically something that has its very first appearance in the 1950s. So originally, it's actually a higher class kind of restaurant than uh, what is termed as ice parlor or the fountain. But then later on, it has some sort of like a um, paradigm shift and then it has some sort of like a trickle down kind of effect. So then eventually most of the restaurants that now we see or identify is called Tatan Tang and based on some sort of like open rise kind of a statistic we have 3,000 of them in Hong Kong. So I guess like a lot of the times when people uh, migrate they are very much longed for uh, what they were, uh, what they had in their hometown or home place and then uh, it is quite natural that people would look for something for example like as very specifically Hong Kong, like Cha Tan Tang, for example, like a Hong Kong-style milk tea or pineapple bun. And then I guess like there would indeed be a trend of opening of Cha Tan Tang overseas. For example, like recently, one of the uh, Cha Tan Tang that is very much known for their curry pork chop rice has opened a branch in Manchester. So uh, I do believe that um, there would be quite a trend. But then, of course, like some people would actually try to argue that are they really Cha Tan Tang when they are not in Hong Kong? I guess that is something that we really have to think about. But at the same time, I do believe that that is something that is rather positive because uh, a lot of the times when we are overseas, we can't exactly um, identify what it means by Hong Kong cuisine. But then with the opening of these Tantantang, then we are somehow going into the market and then we are trying to uh, show that there is actually something that is called Hong Kong cuisine. And then that is actually something that really helps uh, introducing us to um, the rest of the world. And that was Samuel Lai, an anthropologist in Hong Kong food culture, on Tuesday's Back Chat. Let's stay on the culture train for a while, because I've got some art news for you. The Hong Kong Affordable Art Fair is up and running until tomorrow, and Radio 3 intern Carl Che spoke to the fair director, Regina Cheng, about this year's theme. This year, our tagline is Art for All. Um, so what we are trying to um, convey is that we want to encourage uh, visitors to come in and we want to make sure that there are diverse art for everyone. 
And how do you plan on doing that,、uh, including everyone? So,、uh, with the galleries that we invite to our fair, we we try to ensure that they bring different artists,、uh, different categories of artworks to the fair, so that we make sure that there are different categories for everyone's taste,、um, and so that when the visitors come, everyone can find something that they love. So,、yeah. what sort of categories are going to be on display this year? Um, we usually have、um, a wide range of variety of artworks, including contemporary Chinese ink.、Uh, we have abstract paintings. We have sculpture.、Um, this year, we additionally we would have some NFTs,、uh, digital artwork on display as well. So that is something new and different from previous years. Could you please tell me about this year's Young Talent Hong Kong exhibition? Um, so this year, our Young Talent show, we invited curator Jonathan J. Lee to curate the,、uh, this Young Talent feature for us.、Um, so every year, we support、um, a group of young emerging artists from Hong Kong, giving them a platform to showcase their artworks to our visitors. And this year, Jonathan picked 25 artists、um, to work with.、Um, they're mainly illustrators,、um, and the theme is "Welcome to the Zoo." Um, what they will do is they will be narrating in the form of the、um, art medium、um, on Hong Kong about the space that they they've been living in,、um, things that they've encountered in in Hong Kong. So we'll be seeing a spectrum of colors of Hong Kong illustrated by these artists. Ah,、oh. so when you gather these artists, do you come to them and give them the prompt of the year, and then do? And then they create the artwork based on that prompt, or do they already have artwork and then that's how you sort of collect them?、Um, it works both ways.、Uh, sometimes the artists already have artworks that are suitable for the art fair.、Um, sometimes the the artists themselves choose、uh, to create new artworks for the art fair,、um, and based on it. Depends.、Uh, usually, because if we pick them,、um, we know that their artworks or their style and concept would be suitable for the art fair,、um, and so it could go both ways. Yeah.、Uh, another side question I did have that I came across was art therapy. Right.、Yes. Um, could you tell me how that is integrated into the art fair, if at all? So art therapy has been something that affordable art fair、um, have been doing for many years.、Uh, we believe that through art therapy,、um, that people could、um, come to terms with their mental well-being,、um, and I think you know a lot of people do it in different ways.、Uh, you know, it's very popular nowadays,、um, whether it's exercise, it's yoga. Um, but we believe through art therapy, that's also another form of um, um, well mental well-being that some that one can achieve. And so we've been hosting workshops, or we've been working with、uh, the Hong Kong Association of Art Therapists, and they assist our visitors、um, through art uh, making um, and help them through guiding them through this、um, process. Um, you know, of choosing the colors and what the colors represent,、uh, or you know, what kind of forms of shapes that they can draw to help them um, um, achieve a state of well-being. Yeah, so that's what we've been doing for the last couple of years. 
And what sort of art medium is this、uh, workshop? Is it mainly like acrylic, or is can you do like sculpting if that's something you'd like to work with?、Um, we try to keep it simple at the fair because、uh, these workshops are meant for anyone between the age of three、mm. or four to. To sixty or seventy years old, so we we use、uh, watercolors or we use um, um, color pencils、mm-hmm. um, that、uh, could be the most simplest form that、uh, the visitors can 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 interact with, can experience with.、Yeah. Awesome. So, how can people join the affordable arts fair this year?、Uh, we sell tickets online, so. If people are interested to come to the fair, please go to our website, our Eventbrite website. You can be directed from our Affordable Art Fair website as well. There are different tiers of ticketing.、Um, uh, you have to pick your hours and the days that you want to come,、um, and it's as simple as clicking and paying online. Awesome! A big thank you to Regina for the overview of this year's art fair. Next, I sat down with local artist Vicky Chan. Vicky's artwork will be on display as a part of this year's Young Talent Hong Kong exhibition. I asked Vicky about her journey as a young artist to get to where she is now. It's a pretty long story, but I guess I was born in Canada, and ever since I can remember, I had always been drawing and painting. So I explored a lot of different materials, and because I really liked coming up with stories or getting lost inside my own daydreams, so to speak. As we all do, <laughs> I really liked. So I just really liked writing my stories down or drawing them out as pictures. When I was much younger, I found watercolor and ink to be the materials that spoke to me the most. But as I explored more mediums, I moved on to doing acrylic and oil painting when I was in elementary school and all throughout high school because I really enjoyed the textures, the brushstrokes, or like the hypersaturated colors that these paints can achieve. It's not something that. I think any other material can、uh, replace, actually. So there's something really charming about the tactile aspect of these paints, and which is also why I fell in love with painting in the first place. So fast forward to university. <laughs> fast forward to university, I started doing a lot of digital painting, mainly because of my newfound fascination with concept art and character design. During that time, I was really intrigued about how. Much artwork goes into making a movie or a game, like the before the pre-production process.、Mm-hmm. So I was really into that, and I study a lot of courses about it in university, which I'm glad I did because it really affected how I work currently. Which is also why I specialize in both traditional mediums.、Uh, so I do a lot of traditional painting as well as digital painting right now, and I swap materials depending on what kind of project I'm working、mm. on, and it allows me a lot of flexibility when it comes to what kind of effect I want to create or what kind of medium I want to use. So back to my career. <laughs> back to my career. During my final year of university, I started taking a lot of. Uh, illustration com- commissions, freelance ones. The first one being with Chadai Folk. It was a series of illustrations for their online advertisements. It was about Hong Kong. They wanted somebody to illustrate what they thought about Hong Kong, pretty much. So after that, I started working as a costume designer for Ocean Park Hong Kong. Big jump, I know, but I started doing a lot of. I wrote stories. Um, I designed characters, costumes, and props for their Halloween festivities, as well as seasonal events. So the Halloween fest that we all know about. And then afterwards, I worked very briefly with Louis Vuitton Hong Kong, 
And then back to freelance I went. So I, do, I did, so I started doing a lot of my own projects again. And that's where I am currently. So currently I am a freelance artist and designer. I specialize both in traditional painting as well as digital painting, mainly for brands, events, exhibitions, and private commissions. But on the side, I also do a lot of designing bespoke graphics and I hand paint them on luxury goods such as handbags, trunks, uh, furniture, sneakers, and apparel items. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just very impressive. Thank you, Kyle, for a great feature on the affordable art fair on Thursday's Common Room. The fair runs until tomorrow, the 7th of August. On Wednesday's 123 show, we spoke about stroke management, as it's the fourth biggest killer in Hong Kong, with about 68 people each day suffering a new or recurrent stroke. I was joined by Dr. Derek Wong, a specialist in neurosurgery, who talked about the different types of strokes. In short, uh, a stroke me really means um, a disturbance to the blood flow to the brain. So it can be either a blockade of the blood vessel that's causing this inadequate blood flow to certain part of the brain, or there's some bleeding in the brain. Bleeding, in a sense, is the rupture of the blood vessels. So the blood clot there not only would disturb the blood vessel from having blood flow to the designated area, but also the clot inside the brain would cause increase in pressure. And that may as well, in return, become an a increase in pressure inside, and then the heart is not uh, having enough pressure to pump up the blood to the other part of the brain. So it can be either way. So we have two kinds of stroke, ischemic, either, uh, that means blockade of the blood vessel, or hemorrhagic, that means bleeding. And the treatments presumably would be very different for, for the two. Perhaps let's start with ischemic uh, stroke. Uh, what's the treatment for that? Well, they are very different. That's why I always advocate people, if you have any um, suspected stroke symptoms, don't try to take out some of the drugs by yourself and take the medications. Because always the first thing is, if we suspect a stroke when we see the patient at clinic, we go for a CT scan, which helps us to differentiate whether it's an ischemic stroke or hemorrhagic stroke. If it's ischemic stroke, so uh, we are trying to see if it's possible to open up the blood vessel again. In that uh, case, we will try to do some uh, so-called uh, thrombolytic therapy, which in sense is just to give some medication, trying to dissolve the blood clot as blocking the blood vessel. But that has a very strict time limit. We are limiting to four and a half hours. So if the patient has symptom onset, and then we have to take the patient to the hospital, do the scan and stuff, and make sure that uh, he or she is stable enough to, afford, uh, to have the medication, we have to be acting very quickly. Uh, nowadays, we have a different kind of uh, uh, treatment for this kind of uh, ischemic stroke. Uh, if we think that the, the, the blood vessel that is involved is a rather large one, we're still talking about a few millimeters kind of blood vessel, but it's a major one that we may be able to do uh, surgery. It's not a, like a craniotomy. It's not like open up the brain and stuff. It's a, a minimally invasive. We put in a tiny, tiny catheter, which is essentially a plastic tube, silicone tube, through the groin area, all the way through a blood vessel, and try to take the clot out from the uh, vessel in the brain. So we take out the clot, we kind of open up the vessel again. In that sense, try to save the brain from ischemia, from, from infarct, from the stroke. Uh, but all that have a time limit. But uh, it's not important about the time limit after all. It's more important that 
we open up the vessel as soon as possible. Because there have been so many studies saying that the earlier the treatment is, the better the outcome will be. Every minute, in a sense, we lost nearly 2 million neurons. 2 million brain cells die within a minute, every minute, if the blood vessel is blocked. So if we open it up earlier, so the outcome will be better. And these neurons, these cells don't get regenerated, so to speak. Wow. So that's why time is of the essence. That's why we often hear when you're feeling the symptoms of stroke, get to the hospital and and get the treatment. So that's for ischemic um, stroke. What about for hemorrhagic stroke? What's that? Is that the bleeding inside the brain? For hemorrhagic stroke, it's a very different kind of story. We have to assess the patient to make sure that um, he or she is very stable in terms of blood pressure, in terms of uh, the breathing, and also we have to monitor if she has any symptoms of increased intracranial pressure, which in a sense means the pressure pressure inside the skull. If it gets too high, then as I mentioned before, the uh, other part of the circulation to the brain may be affected. So more brain cells may be affected other than the bleeding itself. So all these uh, measures trying to stabilize the patient uh, we can give medication to control the um, pressure inside. As well, we can actually uh, do a surgery to drain out some of the fluid or even to take out the clot. But the surgery is not always essential. It's not always that we see a blood clot, we go and take it out. It's when the blood clot gets so big that it starts to build up pressure, then we have to consider a surgery to take it out. Otherwise, a small blood clot usually will resolve by itself in days or in weeks. So uh, that is not always a surgical disease, but we have to make sure it's stable. If the blood pressure is too high, the patient is not stable, even the blood clot itself can grow bigger in uh, in hours, in in days. So we have to do a lot of things to make sure that the patient is stable. Yeah. Dr. Wong, I read somewhere that within the case of an ischemic stroke, you kind of need to give um, a blood thinner to sort of thin out the blood clot a a little bit. But with the other type of stroke, the hemorrhagic stroke, if you give them the blood thinning uh, medication, they can actually bleed out. So so it's very sort of, um, you have to identify exactly which stroke you're having. Exactly. That's what I mentioned. Don't take medication before you have a proper scanning. Because if we don't do a scan, we cannot be 100% sure which kind of stroke that is. And some of the medications like blood thinner, aspirin, or even some herbal medications can actually induce bleeding. So it will make things worse if there's already some bleeding inside the brain. Are there any, t- it sounds like you need to have a CT scan to really differentiate which stroke you're having. And because time is of the essence, you need to treat it so quickly. Are there ways, yeah. um, I don't know, you know, like COVID tests, you can very quickly tell whether you're, po- is there a test out there that can tell you exactly which type of stroke you're having? The scan, the CT scan actually is very quick. Okay. It's even quicker than doing a PCR test for COVID-19, honestly. <laughs> okay. As long as you go to the hospital then it should be very available. Nowadays, almost every hospital should have a CT scan right away. And to do a scan of the brain, it would take two or three minutes. It's very easy and simple. That's why we always um, talk about two different kinds of imaging. One is CT, the CAT scan. The other one is the MRI. MRI is so much better for the brain in terms of the, the little radiation, uh, the, the much better illustration of the anatomy. But when we talk about acute stroke, sometimes we think that the CAT scan has its benefit because it's so much quicker and tells us 
immediately whether there's any bleeding. So uh, when time is so essential, uh, we, we say the slogan is time is brain. So we don't want to waste time to do fa uh, some uh, fascinating, uh, some uh, complete, com uh, very complicated kind of a procedure. We want a very quick scan to make sure we know what to do for the patient. And that was Dr. Derek Wong, a specialist in neurosurgery. If you want to hear the rest of the interview or any of the interviews in today's program, head on over to the RTHK Podcast One page and all our program podcasts are there. And now, finally, let me leave you with some good old-fashioned music entertainment. Thursday's Afternoon Drive with Steve James. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Until next week. RTHK Radio 3 Oh, the factories may be roaring yeah. With the boom-a-lack-a-zoom-a-lack-a-wee Skadoobity-dee But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four oh. Everything stops for tea And here we go Now I know just why Franz Schubert Well, yes Didn't finish his unfinished symphony What on earth happened there? He might have written more, but the clock struck four And everything stops for tea Tea break this afternoon celebrating singer, band leader, trumpeter, legend Louis Armstrong Born this day, 1901, had a huge hit and one of Noreen's favourites with this. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white. The bright, blessed day, the dark, sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonder.